We are continuing this morning in the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 7, the second part of chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that'll be on page 49. If you want to turn there, we'll read there in just a little bit. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. I've been saying as we've been walking through the book of Exodus, I've been telling you that um, this story is all about God. It's really not just Exodus, it's, it's the Pentateuch, it's the Bible, it's, it's really, it's all of life. All of life is all about God. From beginning to end, it's all about God. And the story of Exodus is all about God. It was about God at the very beginning when we, when we saw the, the Israelites were suffering in oppression and in slavery there in chapter one. It was about God. He heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew. It was about God when Pharaoh told the, the, to have the Hebrew boys cast out into the Nile River and the midwives rebelled against killing the babies of the Hebrews. It was about God in that moment. It was about God when Moses was taken and placed into the Nile just as had been commanded but placed instead in a basket, not drowned in the river. It was about God even then. It was about God when the Israelites continued to suffer and Moses was being raised up in the Egyptian palace. It was about God when Moses was sent off into the wilderness and, and while he's in the wilderness, the bush lights up on fire and doesn't get consumed. It was about God in that moment. It was about God when the voice called out of the bush and then called out to Moses and said, I am who I am. It was all about God. It was about God when Moses rebelled and when Moses tried to get out in every which way, tried to get out of it. It was about God in that moment. It was about God when Moses finally went to Pharaoh, gave him the command that God had given to him, and Pharaoh says, who is this Lord that I should obey him? It was about God in that moment too. It was about God as he reaffirmed to Moses when Moses said, you haven't saved anybody. It was about God when he reaffirmed to Moses, I am the Lord and I will do these things that I have promised. It's all about God. It even was about God as we walked through the genealogies, walking through the priesthood and the prophets that, that we saw in the, in the, in the story of, of Levi and his descendants. It was about God. It was about God even at the end of that chapter where, where he said, this is the Aaron and the Moses that I have chosen. This Moses, this Aaron, these guys are the leaders. Even as they were named, it was about God. And we saw last week in Exodus chapter 7 that this story is about God even as Moses and Aaron come to the, to the prologue, to the prelude of the plagues that we looked at last week in the beginning of chapter seven. It's all about God. And one of the things that we began to see last week, we've been talking about all along, this is not a, this is not a story about Pharaoh versus Moses. It's not a story about, about the Egyptians versus the Hebrews. This is a story about God. It's all about God and it's God. It's God against Pharaoh. It's God even more than that. It's God against Satan, God against evil, 
Righteousness against unrighteousness. And we saw that last week in the story of, of the serpent and the story of Moses and Aaron coming before Pharaoh and commanding that God let the Hebrew people go. And in that moment, Aaron throws down his staff. His staff becomes a serpent. And it reminds us, as I talked about last week, it reminds us that all the way through from, from the garden, the serpent has represented Satan has represented evil, has represented, has represented the, the opposer of God. And it's no secret that Pharaoh chose the serpents, chose the snake as his, one of his representatives. It was on his, on, his, on his crown, on his head, on his headdress. And we're reminded that this battle is about good and evil. Aaron casts down his staff and says, here's your God crawling on the dirt in the middle of the throne room. Look at this God. And Pharaoh is not shook up by that. Pharaoh brings in his servants. They use their secret magic and they make more snakes. And there's more snakes than all writhing on the floor. And the final showdown comes, comes as Pharaoh his snakes began to be swallowed up. And I said last week, swallowed up, I think, in one big fell swoop. Those snakes are swallowed up by, by Aaron's snake. It's in that moment, it's in that moment that we know that God is victorious over all other things. There is no power that's greater than God. He swallows them up in one fell swoop. The prologue of the plagues ends in a swallow. His snake swallows the other snakes. And I said last week that in Exodus chapter 15, Moses at the end, when they finally have gotten through the Red Sea, when they're finally out of Egypt, when they're headed off towards Israel, and the Red Sea, Moses says the Red Sea swallowed up the enemy. The, pr the prelude to the plague starts with a swallow, and it ends in a swallow. I also alluded to the same idea last week. I said Paul, I think, picks up on this picture and when he says in 1 Corinthians that death is swallowed up in victory, that it comes in one fell swoop, that, that the threat is over, the chaos is contained, death is no longer imminent. One fell swoop, Christ comes and swallows up death. And it's bookend as well. Swallow is not a word that's used in Genesis but all of this starts, sin enters into the world with a swallow. And we see it from the very beginning. Adam and Eve bring sin into the world with a swallow from the fruit of the tree that they were commanded not to eat from. And it ends in a swallow when Jesus comes and provides victory over sin and death. So today, we pick up, we're no longer in the prologue. This is the battle that you've been waiting on. You have, if you know the story of Exodus, you know that there's these plagues. You know that there's this battle between, between Moses, or the seeming battle, at least between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. And it comes in these ten plagues. And we have finally reached that point here in Exodus chapter 7. So let's read it together. This showdown that started with, with the swallow of the snakes now turns to ten different plagues. And we begin to read about the first one. In chapter 7, it's page 49, if you're using a pew Bible this morning. Starting in verse 14. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all of the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt, they did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned, went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This story is all about God. And I want you to see that. I want you to know it. I don't want that to escape. I don't want that to escape your grasp. This has all been about God. And God, I think, reminds us of that. Several times in the midst of these stories, as we look at these plagues, um, God is going to remind Pharaoh and in the process remind us that this is all about me. You see it in this story. You see it in these verses right here. Look at, at verse 16 and 17. This is what... This is what God commands Moses and Aaron to say when they go before Pharaoh. They are to say, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me. Then in verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Several times in these plagues, he's going to say something to the same effect. God is going to show his power. God is going to show his sovereignty. And and he's going to do it in a myriad of different ways. But this is all going to be about God. Even as the water turns to blood, even as the frogs begin to come in this next plague, as we look at, as all of these things begin to happen, it's not about what's happening, but it's all about God and his power and his sovereignty. God is going to begin to show his power and his sovereignty. He's going to do it by dismantling the gods of the the Egyptians. He's going to do it by dismantling the idols of the Egyptians. The Nile River flows, as you know, flows through Egypt, and it is the lifeblood. It is the main source of life for all of Egypt. 
And it's, it's difficult, it's hard, as I, as I read about it this week some, it's hard to, to even begin to describe how important the Nile River is to Egypt, especially in these ancient times. It would have been, the Nile would have been the place that, that they, they went for transportation. It's the way they got around in the country. It was the th- stuff they used for irrigation so that they might, might water their crops. It's the, it's the water that began to prepare the soil so that they could have crops in the first place. It's the place that they went to for drinking water. It's the place that they went to for food and the fish that were in it. They even used the Nile for setting the calendar by, by watching the, the tides and the floods that came from the Nile River. It was everything to the Egyptians. One commentator even said that, that this type of catastrophe, this Nile turning to blood, this type of catastrophe would be similar for us in the West if we were to cut off all of our oil supply, the stock market were to collapse, drinking water would be contaminated, and there would be no food in the grocery store. That's what it's like for the Egyptians as the Nile turns to blood. It would have been total chaos. Something that we can't really even fathom, we can't understand. We can, we can go back to, to the toilet paper crisis of 2020 and we understand that idea, but that pales in comparison to what this would have been like for the Egyptians. But even more than the chaos that would have come from it, even more than having this main lifeblood cut off for these seven days, even more than that, God is using this not just to stir up chaos in Egypt, but again to dismantle their idols, to dismantle their gods. The Egyptians used the Nile for all those things, transportation, irrigation, drinking water, food, setting the calendar, tides, floods, all those things. But more than that, they worshipped. They worshipped the Nile. It was an idol for them. And they had a number of gods that they made out of the Nile or that they associated with the Nile. There was the great uh, Osiris. He was the god of the Nile. He was, he even as, as in the art of the time, he would have been depicted with, with the river, the Nile River running through his bloodstream. He was, he was the god of the Nile. There was the god new in you. He was the god of life of the river of the creation in the river. There's also the God Happy, H-A-P-I. The God Happy was the God of the flood. He was the, he was the fertility God that they worshiped. And every year as the, as the river would flood out over the land and prepare the soil for this farmland that they would later use, they would praise the God Happy for centuries. Egyptians praised Happy, it says, as the giver of life, as the Lord of sustenance, as the one who causes the whole land to live through his provision. The God of the Hebrews, the one true God, could not, would not allow the praise of all of these idols, of all of these gods, to take the praise that was rightfully his. And so he begins to attack the idols and the gods of the Egyptian. It shouldn't surprise us that he would come after the Nile first and foremost. Not only was it so important to Egypt that the Egyptians began to worship these gods of, of the Nile, 
But I think we can also infer and see that many of the Hebrews worshipped these same gods. They too would have seen the importance of the Nile. They too would have understood how important it was, not just to the Egyptians, but they lived there too. It would have been just as important for them. And they began to worship him too. And, and the, one of the reasons why I can, can say that is later, as the, as the Israelites, as the Hebrews are, are marched out of Egypt, they're wandering around the desert, what's one of the first things that they, they begin to do? They long to go back to Egypt. They long to go back to where it was safe, where they understood it, where they, and, and, and they easily, the Hebrews, the Israelites, all the way through their history, they easily grab on to all of these other idols of the people around them. They're never satisfied. They're never content. They're never, their hearts are never fully set on the one true God. And they're easily swayed. Their eyes are easily set on lesser things and lesser idols. And I'm positive that that would have been true for many of the Hebrews here. On this day when Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh on the bank of the Nile River, I don't think that they're coming just to dismantle the gods and idols of the Egyptians, but to prove God's power and sovereignty even to the Israelites, even to the Hebrews. They too would have worshipped these gods. Another reason why I think that he starts with the Nile, and, and we'll see these first, there's, there's really three kinds of groupings of plagues as we walk through this. These, this first grouping of three plagues, they, they come from the water, and this first one is the Nile, and then we'll see the frogs. And, and, and these first ones come, come, come out of the, the water. The, the, the second group of three are all associated to land. And then the last group of, of plagues that we see, they come from the sky. They come from above. And it's almost as if God is saying, I'm in charge of all of this from the very depths, from the very begin, from the, from, from the basement to the first floor that you see, to the upstairs. All of it, this is mine from top to bottom. Every part of this, I'm in charge. I am the God of all of creation. And so he begins by showing, not only is, is he in charge over the gods, the idols of the Egyptians, but he's the God of the water. And... The Nile, in particular, we've already seen it show up a couple of different times in this story. If you remember back to chapter 1, back to chapter 1 where, where Pharaoh is, is commanded all the, the Hebrew boys to be, to be shoved out into the Nile, to be drowned in the Nile. The Nile is where Moses is, is placed in his basket and rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. The Nile has been used as a weapon against God and his plans. And so now God turns the table. Says this thing that you thought you controlled, you thought you used, you thought was there for whatever you wanted to do with it. Let me show you who's really in charge. And so the stage is set for God to work through the Nile to begin to put judgment on Pharaoh. We don't know exactly what Pharaoh was doing on the riverbank that morning. We have no idea. There's lots of different speculation commentators as I read it, but 
we, we don't have any idea. We don't know if he woke up in the morning and liked to watch the sun rise over the Nile. We don't know if he went out early every morning to take a bath. We don't know if he was a, a swimmer and wanted to go out for exercise in the morning and jump into the Nile. We don't have any idea. And so even as I share what I, what I think, as I, as I read, we don't have any idea. This is a whole hypothesis. But it seems, it seems that Pharaoh, the worshiper of these gods, of the Nile, probably every morning came out. It, was, it would have been a steady thing. They all knew that he was going to be there on the bank that morning. He probably came out every morning to worship, to praise, to pray, maybe, to pray to the idols of the Nile and the gods of the Nile. And it's on this morning that God gives instructions to Moses and Aaron to head out to the riverbank to find Pharaoh where he always is in the morning and to tell him. And God tells Moses, he says, I want you to go, I want you to to reaffirm the call that I've already given to you. I want you to reaffirm this command that I have given, that that he is to let my people go that they might serve me in the wilderness. This call of God doesn't change from beginning to end, the same call of God over and over and over. This is what God has called you to do, Pharaoh. And then Moses even belittles Pharaoh a little bit. He says, this is the call. Let my people go that they may serve me in the, in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. So far, you have not obeyed. Isn't it about time, Pharaoh, for you to obey? Isn't it time for you to give in? God gives Moses and Aaron instructions. Take your staff, stretch it out over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their canals, over their ponds, over their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood through all the land of Egypt, even in the wood, even in the stone. And so Aaron comes, meets Pharaoh at the riverbank, gives him these instructions, tells him exactly what God has told him to do, And then reaches out his staff, strikes the water, and all the water in Egypt turns to blood. Don't pass over that too quickly. All the water in Egypt turns to blood. All the water in Egypt turns to blood. The canals, the rivers, the ponds, the pools of water. Even the, even the water that when they went to bed that night, they had a pitcher of water in their house so that when they woke up in the morning, they could get a glass of water and have a drink to quench their nighttime thirst. Those pitchers, blood. All the water in Egypt has been turned to blood. All the water in Egypt And as you move past all the water in Egypt, begin to think about turns into blood. Think about it. The color of the Nile River and the ponds and the canals and the rivers and the pitchers of water. The texture. It's not just food coloring that gets put into the water. It turns to blood. Becomes thick and 
rich. Think about the smell. Especially as it begins to get warm in the day and the sun is shining on the Nile River and it's a gigantic, huge body of blood. Think about the stains that would leave in the pitchers and the bowls that you had on your counter on anything that's floating out in the water. Think about the shock and the awe of seeing this water turn into blood in an instant. And as you're picturing all of that and you're seeing it and it's happened and, and, and all of this has happened, then all of a sudden the fish start floating to the surface of this giant body of blood water. It's easy for us, I think, to run right by. We see it, we understand it, we, we have the picture, but this was unbelievable. Pharaoh has this happens, has the same response he did earlier as Aaron Moses and Aaron throw their staff down and it turns into a snake. He calls his, he calls his advisors, he calls his cabinet in, he calls his counselors in, he calls in his magicians. And he says, this is what, this is, see, see what Moses and Aaron have done, what, what can you do? The Bible tells us, and we don't, we don't have any picture yet of uh, maybe they've, they, we'll have a picture of what, how, how the Egyptians have something to drink in just a little bit. And maybe that's, maybe that's where these magicians go to. They, they find, somehow they find a clear, a clear group of water, a clear bowl, a clear pitcher. I don't, I don't know how they do it. But they have some water. And they're able with their secret arts, it says, this power and strengthening that they have that, that I as I said last week, I think comes from the power of evil, the power of Satan at work in the midst of this. Their secret arts, they're able to turn these, these bowls, these pitchers, whatever they have of water, they're, able, they're also able to turn it into blood. And as I said last week, when, when, when they show up and they're able to duplicate what Aaron and Moses have, have already done, that does not make it better. More snakes does not make the scenario last week better. And more bowls of blood does not make this scenario any better as well. If they had any power at all, if, 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 if God was not in charge of it, if they actually had power over what God was doing, if they had power over the sovereignty of God, it would have been much better for them to get bowls of blood and turn them into water so that they had something to drink. But they're not able to make it better at all. They're only able to make it worse. It's almost as if their secret arts that they're using to do this conversion from water to blood is really not their power at all. And the one who is sovereign over all of creation, all of creation, is even sovereign over this. Pharaoh calls his, eight, his counselors and his magicians. They can't make it better, but they can make it worse. And Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. He turns his back and heads back into his palace. 
Imagine. Imagine now. The Nile is blood. The canals are blood. The rivers are blood. The pools, the reservoirs are blood. The water in the pitchers and the bowls are blood. And the Egyptians are thirsty. And that thirst begins to grow and, and, and overwhelm them. They know there's nowhere to go. They don't have anything to drink. And not only have, do they need something to drink, but their, their gods have been destroyed and belittled right in front of them. Judgment has come upon their nation, and they're seeing it firsthand. This judgment, this judgment is foreshadowed here in Exodus of what we know to be the ultimate, one of the ultimate judgments that's to come when, when the disciple, when John has a vision of what's to come in the end times in the future. He talks about this same idea. It's in Revelation chapter 16. It says there's, there's seven angels, there's seven bowls of God's wrath that get poured out at the end times. And the third angel, it says in Revelation chapter 16, the third angel pours out his bowl into the rivers and into the springs of water and they become blood, it says. John says, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Just are you. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. There's a judgment. There's a judgment on Pharaoh. There's a judgment on the Egyptians. There's a judgment on those that worship the God of the Nile. But there's a judgment to come. For all who are far from God and worship created things rather than the creator. But, but I'm reminded in this story that God is gracious. It tells us that the Egyptians dig along the Nile for water to drink, for they couldn't drink from the water of the Nile. Doesn't it make sense that if God in that moment can turn this flowing river into blood and can turn the canals into blood and can turn the ponds into blood and can turn the pitchers and the bowls that sit on the counter in the homes, if he can turn all of those things into blood, doesn't it just make sense that he also could have turned the ground soil right next to the Nile into blood? Absolutely, he could have. But God was gracious. And so the Egyptians are able to dig along the side of the Nile, and instead of coming up with blood, they come up with water. From the very first swallow of Adam and Eve in the garden, when sin entered into the world, every person has deserved judgment, has deserved death. But God, 
while we were still sinners. But God, while we were still deserving of swift and severe punishment, but God, while we rightly suffered from the results of our sin, but God, while we worshiped created things rather than the creator and we worshiped gods made out of our own hands and idols made out of our own hands, but God, while we thirsted for life, but only continued to drink in death, But God provided a way for us to quench the thirst of our souls. He did it by sending his son, Jesus. The perfect man who one day is standing right next to a well and says to the woman, everyone who drinks this water they'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him, they will never be thirsty again. The water that I give them will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus, the one who speaks of being the living water, comes, lives perfectly, and ultimately pays the punishment that he did not deserve. Took the beating, took, took the death, took the separation, took the punishment for you and I so that we might have life. His blood was shed so that we might drink deeply of the grace of God. For the Egyptians on this day and for the seven days that followed. The blood of the Nile brought death. It brought death to the fish. It brought death probably to a number of Egyptians who were not able, who were not able to drink and to have what they needed. Blood brought death in this moment. But for us, through the graciousness of God, the blood of Christ brings life. We have hope today because of Jesus. Because while we were still sinners, God was gracious to us. That's what we celebrate here together as we come to the table in just a moment. God was gracious to us. And it's by the blood of Jesus that we have hope. There's an invitation in your bulletin this morning. If you can live under that invitation, we want you to celebrate in communion with us. In just a few moments, our elders will come and they will, they will prepare the elements and then they will dismiss you by rose so that you can come and share in this communion together. There's two cups that are stacked together. We invite you just to take both of those cups together. The bottom cup holds the bread, the top cup holds the juice. And then to take those cups back to your seat and we'll share in communion together. If you're unable to come forward, please just flag down an usher and they will, or one of the elders as they come through and they'll serve you communion there in your table, at your seat. God was gracious and provided for us hope through Jesus. And we get to celebrate that together this morning. 
that you'll celebrate it with me. To remember our call 
to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth as we share in his suffering we proclaim Christ will come again and we'll join in the feast of hell around the table represents the body of Jesus Christ, which was broken for us. Take and eat and be grateful. And this represents the blood, which for us brings life, the blood of Jesus. This covers our sins. Take and drink and rejoice. Please stand this morning for our benediction. It comes from Revelation chapter 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning.